0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Welcome to our special remote studio or studios. We've got a big line up today. You'll never guess what we're talking about. It's coronavirus and its many manifestations, including the financial impact that we'll be bearing for many, many years to come. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the IPA. If you'd like to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au now. Uh, But first of all, let me introduce my co-panelists for today. First of all, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Chris. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Good. Great to see you. If I could see you as such, um, I'm sure Saul will do one of those terrific cutaways It'll be like we're in the same room. It's wonderful. And also
1: uh, joining from the Spencer Street bunker is Gideon Rosner, Director G'day. of Policy of the IPA. G'day, Scott. Yeah, hold up in Spencer Street, the towering inferno. <laughs> uh, th- thanks so much for joining us. This um, uh, is,
0: it's been an amazing couple of weeks, uh, really. Uh, the first couple of weeks we were dealing with the pandemic, we've been talking about that on looking forward, trying to understand the way that health policy experts have been driving the debate uh, with sometimes devastating economic consequences. And here we are uh, talking about then the economic rescue packages and also further measures that have been taken by governments across the nation. But, uh, Chris, the centrepiece of the federal government's economic packages has been the JobKeeper uh, scheme that's just been announced could you uh, cover a little bit of that for us?
2: It has been Scott. We're recording this on um, Friday, the third of April. Turns out that the JobKeeper package was actually announced this week, but it feels like an age ago, such as the the pace of um, uh, the pace of news at the moment. But the JobKeeper package, I think, is the centrepiece of the government's. Um, uh, coronavirus crisis strategy. As um, many listeners will know, it will provide a payment of about fifteen or of fifteen hundred dollars per employee to um, uh, large and small firms that have had significant revenue hits during the crisis the argument behind this and we should we should have a conversation about whether we think this is good policy or not but the argument behind this is that the government is trying to hibernate or freeze the economy until the coronavirus crisis lifts now i've got a bunch of issues with that and some pretty serious conceptual issues about the idea of freezing or hibernating an economy. But why don't I ask Gideon first, what is your first takeout when you heard about this policy? um, uh, How do you think about it? And more importantly, how do you think about it as someone who's been opposed to government spending for most of their career?
1: Since I was about Fifteen or sixteen, I joined the Liberal Party because I was the coolest kid on the playground. No, <laughs> my, my first thought was just was just morose, abject, bitter depression. I mean, the 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 scale of the debt into which we are being plunged for the sake of this was just uh, we will never pay this off, never, ever, ever. I mean, we couldn't even pay off the the Rudd debt, which looks small by comparison. Uh, as for the package itself, look, I, I begrudgingly accept the need for it on some level and i am of the view that or have been of the view that a job a, a wage subsidy of some form is better than chucking a whole lot of people under the dole because as it particularly it's a particular necessity in australia because australia has industrial relations laws that make it difficult uh, more difficult than other countries for people who have been long-term unemployed to enter the workforce, and there are various statistics showing that if you have been unemployed for a year, maybe, God forbid, two years, it's very difficult to get a look in because it's a red flag, it might cause issues with fair work, uh, claims for unfair dismissal and all sorts of things if the person ends up being a dud. Um, But all that said, look, is it realistic to expect businesses to go into hibernation? I mean, they, they might be able to pay people effectively a restaurant for example that was going to lay people off might be able to keep people on the payroll on this JobKeeper payment but does that pay for other overheads? You know rent is a bad example because commercial landlords are being shamed into not or indeed legislatively um, forbidden from charging or from evicting tenants for uh, six months but the government can't pay every overhead of every business in Australia. This idea that we can put the economy into hibernation like a laptop and then jolted back into life with a snap of your fingers. I just think it's unrealistic, and I think it's it's frankly a a, a, um, a convenient myth that circumvents the fact that we are shutting down our entire economy for, if the government's to be believed, six months.
2: No, I think that's right, and the idea that you can, as you say, you, you put it into sleep to save the battery is yeah. an absurd claim. Uh, the, the fundamental problem is that even if it was possible for the government to seriously freeze the economy. So keep everyone in place for six months. Well, it, six months later, or even a couple of weeks later, everything will have changed. Um, uh, my colleagues at RMIT and I had a piece on um, uh, precisely this problem. It's very a it, uh, medium, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, you cannot just freeze an economy and pick up where you left off because so much changes in the meantime the economy is not a fixed static thing it's Mm -hmm. an ever evolving thing and um the economy that the government is trying to freeze will not be the economy that they um eventually allow to thaw because you know we will have gone through a pandemic we will have had different tastes we will have had these huge changes in supply chains. There may have been a reduction in international trade. There may be um, really strong demand for some things and not other things. Um, I, it's just obviously absurd. But but having said that, I, I on the to the point of the job keepers package, I actually really struggle to think of what alternative model there is. Yes, we yeah, should be right, doing things right. like cutting red tape and we should be cutting taxes and all those sort of things. But those are always true. Yeah. um uh, what do you do when the government shuts down your economy because that's what's happened here and we've talked about this in the past this isn't a problem like the global financial crisis where there was malinvestments and there were bad um, business decisions made um and so the crisis was a clearing out in this context the government has told us to shut our economy down
1: yeah and I've always seen I've always said that um you know, a, a few, uh, people say, oh, libertarians, you must hate government involvement. No, um, global pandemics and genuine public health emergencies, not pretend ones like, you know, sugar and salt or whatever the hell, um, genuine public health emergencies are one of the legitimate roles for the state. Uh, the state, in situations like this, can and should take drastic and unusual action to, co- action to control the outbreak. Uh, and if that drastic and unusual action involves the you know businesses and and livelihoods rendered unlawful by government edict then the state has a an obligation i think a moral obligation certainly to compensate people for uh in effect the acquisition you know the the stealing of its property the stealing of its the profits that it would otherwise uh have but so you know i i i agree that something needed to be done but but maybe just maybe uh, we shouldn't have shut down our economy to the massive extent that we have in the first place, but that's something we'll talk about, I think, later in the show.
0: Yeah, we, we, we certainly will get in. What, what this brings to mind, uh, Chris, so is we've been talking about this over the last few weeks. I'm looking forward, and, and I, we've had some terrific feedback from, from listeners on the, on the episodes because we were trying to both think through the management of the pandemic and think through the management of the economy and then trying to link them. Um, it's like uh, a, a listener sent me a, um, uh, a link to uh, good old Peter Singhi's uh, book on systems thinking, um, which our tiny brains are at least attempting to undertake. And what's, what's happening here? So as Gideon says, conceptually, the, the JobKeeper system is a reasonable response because we believe in the dignity of work and something that keeps people's connection to the workplace. Both provides dignity of work and the opportunity for that business to hopefully restart at some point. Um, uh, now, uh, not this this hibernation uh, idea is just a, a metaphor that's gone out of control, and it was started by a couple of academics. Sorry, Chris, but that <laughs> <tells you. laughs> this is the sort of thing that intellectuals do. They come it's up with excluded, and then and then they become um, uh, public policy. So. But what you have to do in systems thinking is really think through this model. So uh, Scott Morrison has said six months. You know, obviously a very expensive scheme. It's six months. But when you look at it in the context of the pandemic, we are in, we have a paradox operating here, which I I don't think is being discussed, even when people talk about the difference between flattening the curve versus short, sharp shock or, or ignore it and hope it'll go away. That the more successful the current lockdown is, the fewer people in six months time will actually have immunity. The better we are at the moment of containing the transmission of this virus, the more risk we will have in six months, as opposed to some other kind of scenario in which it actually got out of control and, um, uh, with, and, and had done terrible things, but at least there was an immunity in the population. So my concern is that this very expensive scheme, which we can barely afford Uh, you know, $130 billion can't afford it.
1: We're borrowing money to fund the damn thing.
0: That's right. We're on our way to a trillion dollars in debt, as IPA researchers showed. And, um, And this is my concern that there's no thinking about how do you come out of this? And what I find it very hard to imagine a scenario which in six months time, the tap just gets turned off. How will that actually work? No, it absolutely
2: won't. And there's almost no scenario that you can conceive outside just a absolute 100% vaccine in the entire population that doesn't involve a very slow, staggered, staged return to work. And on top of that, it's not just um, a slow, staggered stage to work, return to work in Australia. It's globally as well. I mean, we are, like everyone, deeply, deeply connected into global supply chains. And there is gonna be some very, Uh, very, very different approaches. There's going to be some very differently timed returns to work. This is going to take a very, very long time. Now, I suspect, though, that our staged return to work will be sooner rather than later, um, in part because I just don't see how the economy can um, survive the uh the the um problems that we're throwing at it right now but also because once you go into these maximum lockdowns as we have then it's quite um uh it 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 should be quite clear and quick to see whether they are functioning as as we desire so hopefully in the next couple of weeks we can see a really um clear response to the shutdown um, and then we can start returning some people in more essential jobs to work in the cities and, um, and towns around the world.
0: That's quite right, Chris. Chris the only uh, question I have over that is I don't, I don't much like the language of essential and non-essential when it comes to the economy. Mm. Uh, I understand it in the context of the health system when you, where you talk about essential workers, but the economy is such a interconnected beast. Uh, for instance, we've seen lines of trucks now piled up at state borders. These are elementary aspects of interstate commerce. Where How's that goddamn toilet paper going to move around? I don't even know. I think it's made in Victoria. Does that mean that in far north Queensland, they're not going to have toilet paper? So um, we must, and this is the thing, no thought. I've got, a, I've got a piece which I hope to have published soon. You're not the only one writing away furiously, Chris. Um, <laughs> making the point that all of our best and brightest minds are currently working out how to lock Australia down. That's actually the easy bit, as we've seen. It's a complete ratchet effect. You know, every, every notch moves forward quite easily, there, but there's no plan for getting it back. Um, we should have the best and brightest minds working out how can we bring people back to work in a managed risk environment, because it'll be only about managing risk. There is no zero risk environment here. Um, We are going to have to bring people back to work in an environment where, absent some kind of miracle cure, um, people are going to be at risk of this damn thing, Um, because otherwise, uh, as we've discussed, there won't be an economy to come back to. No, that's right.
2: And what we're going to face is um, once we go off these JobKeeper supplements or once the people are on these JobKeeper supplements, the government releases the support. I think that is one of the most dangerous times for the economy because that is when we realise that those um, firms that we've been propping up through government funding, well, they don't really have customers or tastes have changed or the needs and demands and preferences have changed. There's going to be a um, uh, a very bad economic adjustment or very challenging economic adjustment because of the disruptions of the, of the pandemic.
0: And I might also say, Gideon can perhaps jump in here, uh, the other thing that's just occurred to me uh, is politicians manage to their performance measures, not mm. ours, not, not those of voters. And one of the performance measures and what, what gets measured gets managed is the unemployment rate yeah so imagine the scenario in which hundreds of thousands of people who've been supported in their employment relationship uh, go from being on the job keeper uh, system uh, to new start and actually show up in the unemployment figures as they fill out the abs surveys and and the unemployment rate, which looked like an already horrible sort of nine percent suddenly goes to fourteen percent and uh, so the incentive for the politicians will be to avoid that date. We've seen in the past how they will shift heaven and earth and fiddle figures and change definitions so as to keep the headline unemployment rate down. Um, you know, Gideon, you've done some work on um, labour force participation. That's that's another reason why it's hard to, um, hard to think through what the scenario for getting out of this yes, might be. Uh,
1: yes. Correct. A- and and part of the reason I'm, I'm so... Ups- I, mean, I really did... Get really, uh, I mean, it was a shockingly confronting sight seeing those lines on Centrelink because we've had a job crisis in Australia for quite some time. The, As you said, the unemployment rate, I mean, firstly, the unemployment rate is skewed anyway. It, it, you're counted as being employed if you work for an hour a week. I mean, that may be technically employment, but it's a, at the very least severe under, underemployment. Uh, but as you said, I, one of the first things I did for the IPA, in fact, was uh, work that was modeled on. Um, a, a similar study by a bloke named Nick Aberstat from the American Enterprise Institute, which was looking at the underlying true nature of unemployment. That is, uh, unemployment only measures people who uh, are in the labour force. So you have to either be looking for a job or in a job to or looking for a job to be counted as unemployed. You if you're if you've given up for whatever reason, uh, you're not counted. Anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying that we have a combined youth. Um, unemployment and underemployment rate for for instance in australia of about 30 percent 30 percent of young people in australia are either unemployed or underemployed that's before this crisis in a supposedly good economy so you're right there will be this impulse by politicians to sweep this under the rug by keeping people technically employed but yeah in a way if they end up going back to a business as chris said with no customers and no uh no viability after this is over anyway, then really what's the difference between the job keeper and the job seeker allowance? I mean, it, it's it's about $400, in fact, 1500 a week versus 1100 a week.
0: Yes, I think we'd better come back to the costs of the scheme as it fits into the overall picture of Australia's finances going forward, which is... Um, Uh, Nothing less than terrifying when we add it all up. But um, we have been talking about the the clampdowns. And so in a minute, uh, we'll be back after this break and we'll talk about the latest wave of measures, particularly in New South Wales, where the uh, police have been out in force in parks. We'll be back in just a moment after a technical break. Now, all over Australia, state and federal governments walk out of their National Cabinet teleconference hookups and have been announcing new measures, new social restrictions, almost on a daily basis. It's slightly different in every state. Apparently you can't go fishing in Victoria, but you can go fishing in New South Wales. Perversely though, most of the focus this week has been on New South Wales and some of the extraordinary scenes that we've seen uh, as a result of the passage of the Public Health COVID-19 Restrictions on Gathering and Movement Order 2020 signed into force by Gladys Berejiklian uh, earlier this week and enforced by the police commissioner. Chris, you've been following this. What's happening?
2: I have been following this, but of course I've been following it from inside, the only place that we're legally allowed to be. Um, So it seems like every couple of days, if not every day, the premiers, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, announce new movement restrictions, um, sometimes somewhat incoherently. Um, uh, In Victoria, there was a a, um, debate for for six or 12 hours or so about whether people who were not living with their romantic partners were allowed to visit their romantic partners at all. Originally, they weren't. Now they are, um, there's questions about the, um, uh, as you say, there's questions about whether you can go fishing by yourself. There's questions about what you can do in public parks with your family or with friends. Um, uh, and of course, everybody will have now seen the many scenes around the country of um, uh, of, of police officers, um, uh, checking on groups in parks and individuals sitting and having their lunch, tradies having their lunch um, in parks and finding out and whether they are legally allowed to be there. Um, this is an extraordinary uh, visual um, uh, episode, if nothing else, as we see what a police state actually looks like. Um, and it's kind of horrifying. Usually uh, we think ourselves excluded from those um, uh, those events, but it, um, it's very clear that we're now seeing what it looks like.
1: Yeah, well, I'll be the first to say it. Um, these re- re- restrictions uh, that are being imposed by state premiers in particular are completely bloody ridiculous. They're getting completely over the top. Um, what we are engaged in here, essentially, and I hope I'm not using language so I shouldn't be on this podcast we are watching we're seeing a gigantic pressing contest between the state premiers on who can firstly take their state's economy the fastest they are engaging as I said earlier this week in societal backburning. they are burning down their state in order to save it but In particular on this, I mean, you've got this bizarre dynamic in which, you know, Gladys Berejiklian will say, well, I'm going to make sure that people uh, can't go to the pub. Daniel Anderson will say, well, I'm going to make sure that I can't go and do anything except for nominated reasons. Uh, And then you have... Uh, Mark McGowan over in WA, who was taking a pretty sensible approach up until a few days ago, saying, well, the hell with that. I'm going to make people wear tracking bracelets if they flout these rules. I mean, but the, the thing is, Chris, you, you, I made a, quite a flippant remark when you were saying, you know, this is the kind of police state that we don't see in Australia. I read it a slightly different way. This is the logical and inevitable conclusion of a dynamic that has been building in Australia for quite some time. We do not have, uh, say, for glorious pockets of... Uh, intelligentsia in the media like the RPO and so on, the, the, the suspicion of authority that we really should certainly not the suspicion of authority that is, you know, sort of mythically baked into our cultural DNA in songs like Waltzing Matilda and so on. We have paved the road for this with every single um, over- example of government overreach and threats to our liberty that seems small and insignificant but are like the old fog in the pot boiling uh, metaphor. Uh, We have paved the road for this with every single uh, speed limit that was unduly reduced for a stupid bloody reason that won't make a difference to road safety. That We've sort of said, oh, well, if it's in the interest of safety, we'll go along with it. We've paved the road um, for it with every every, every jacking up of liquor license fees, every lockout, every, um, uh, you know, small, every tax hike, every small incursion into our liberty. uh, We have blindly accepted in most instances, uh, and if there is a silver lining to this whole catastrophe, and maybe there is, it is that people are going to develop a, a suspicion of authority. People are going to say, hang on, who gave police the powers to, you know, tell me to drive up to me in the middle of a park and tell me to move on if I'm reading a book by myself? We did. We stood by when the Enabling Acts under these obscene regulations were um uh, made uh, every time an enabling act like that was passed, we, we paid no attention. Now we've learned a very very bad lesson.
0: No, yeah, I think that's, that's right, Gideon, and I I like to think of your silver lining. I'm I'm actually going to cling to that. Mm-hmm. The idea that, to you know, to that uh, the the young the younger generation in Australia, the um, uh, that might be members of the IPAs Generation Liberty program. Uh, who, who've thought about these in mainly uh, theoretical terms, you know, what might a police state look like, how does it actually come about, these kinds of things. They might see this and actually understand, oh, that's what it's like. I mean, we've also seen, of course, uh, the army called out to help. Uh, in And, uh, you know, they're tremendously disturbing images. I think one of the things, though, is um, some of the measures are actually about enforcement of invest. Uh, existing regulations, and uh, I have some sympathy with uh, police being uh, asked to more strongly enforce regulations, uh, say, for self-isolation. Uh, many of the the arrests in New South Wales yesterday, which they published a list of, uh, were actually for people who'd been repeatedly warned, uh, but were nevertheless uh, out and about. I suspect there's alcohol and substance abuse problems tied up with that. and um, uh, But in other... But this is where the bureaucratic state, the the police state starts to work additional rules that are impossible to follow and take leave of common sense. And I think there's also an anger in the Australian community, although those who are angry about it are angry. One of the reasons why they're angry is while they were dreaming up rules about you're not even allowed to sit on a park bench, uh, these kinds of things, um, that we moved from the realm of uh, things that, could be reasonably held to prevent transmission of disease, such as, say, closing down um, restaurants on a temporary basis, into things where there just simply is no conceivable way in which viruses can be transmitted. And the more and more rules that you have, the less opportunity people just have to use their common sense. Australians are not stupid. I think, Scott, one of the really important things to
2: think about when we assess these policies is the fact that we're um, it's like we're watching from out the back of a moving car. It takes 10 to 14 days for us to know whether any given intervention has been successful, because it takes time for someone to, to be infected. It takes time for them to get the symptoms. So then it takes time for them to get tested. It takes time for the results to come through as well. And so every time that the government increases these restrictions... We have to remember they are doing so not knowing whether the previous set of restrictions have actually been successful. So because they're updating them every 24 hours or 12 hours or what have you. So Daniel Andrews has come out with even stricter rules around exercise today on Friday, um, which add to the rules that he announced on Wednesday. Well, if you look back 10 days ago, or or twelve or, or fourteen days ago, that was when the original um, ban on non-essential work came in. That was when the original cancellation of school came in. We're only now seeing the results of that. So I'm I, I'm really concerned that um, to to your point that the go and and Gideon's point that the government keeps ratcheting up these restrictions with no reason to believe that yesterday's restrictions were insufficient to tackle the virus.
0: That's a terrific point because uh, what will happen, of course, is that any measurable impact on the overall rate will be seen as a vindication of all the measures they've taken. But it's a vindication of the measures 10 to 14 days ago. That's
2: the trick. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I I find it really hard to read. So, for instance, Greg Hunt, and, and I don't think Greg Hunt's doing a terrible job, here at the moment but uh, you read Greg Hunt saying like yes yes what we're announcing is it's quite successful no what you announced 10 to 14 days ago is what has caused any change that you see in the numbers not what you announced yesterday
1: yeah look at the risk of labouring my own point I mean you get the sense in a lot of cases that that they're actually getting off on this Uh, particularly when you look at somebody (laughs) like you know I never thought um, they would. The, the state of New South Wales could dig up a police police commissioner meaner than Andrew Scipione. But this Mick Fuller, who comes on, you because know, I'm glued to Sky as I always am, who comes on sternly lecturing people about lying down in the park. And he was asked about how ridiculous that is, and he sort of said something like, "Well, if I let you know, one or two people sit down in the park, we'll have another Bondi I mean, that is an extremely condescending and patronising attitude. I mean, Australians aren't completely uh, stupid, and the and as you said, uh, Chris, the bans on um, on some forms of exercise. I mean, there there is a ban on fishing. At, or as Scott said in Victoria, not in New South Wales, you can jog on your own, um, but you can't go fishing on your own. It, it is a, a, a totally insulting blanket rule that, it, it, again, is an, is the the natural conclusion of what's been happening for a very long time. Which is
2: no. And when we when we, we write the history the of this, when we write the history of this. Um, we will look at that photo from Bondi and be very, very judgmental of the moral panic that it sparked. Yeah, Because the vast majority, as far as I can tell, having read a great deal about it, um, the vast majority of the people at Bondi at that time were in family groups and Mm. they were separated. They'd just been shot using telephoto lenses that compress everybody Correct. together. So it looks like a um, the busiest day on Bondi in 30 years when in fact, I'm pretty sure that um, this was a socially distancing um, example of people trying to get what recreation they can. But the moral panic that it sparked and the policy consequences of those couple of photographs and the couple of bleatings on Twitter have left us with these scenes of cop cars driving through state parks, hunting down people, having a sandwich quietly by themselves. I think it, it is an extraordinary instance of a, um, uh, a, a of an Australian moral panic. And it does go to show to your point, Gideon, everybody in Australia thinks that we're cops. We all think that we're cops mm. trying to police each other.
1: Well, that's, yeah, has been a great um, a piece about that, written by um, Miranda Devine, which is people are just again getting off on this uh, ph- phenomenon of being dibber dobbers. It's all, almost like a kind of virtue signalling. And and the other piece that's very interesting is Annalise Nielsen, the guy. Uh, Uh, Anchor and journalist wrote a great piece for the Oz about what it's like as a single person being holed up And somebody, in her her case, who can actually leave the house to go to her job to be a a reporter I mean, people trying to do what they can to keep some human connection Get this angry howling down of stay the F home, stay the F home What are you doing? You're killing grandma In in such a way that is, is totally divorced from the reality of how this actually is likely to spread the, the other thing
0: is, I just want to come back to Chris's point because, um, hey, I'm a conservative. I, I I have nothing but respect for the police force, but uh, the original tradition that we have in Australia, you know, all dating all the way back to you know, Robert Peel setting up the original bobbies, is that you know the police are part of the community, and I think what this has done is is completely rip away that fiction. I think it still exists at the level of the individual. Constable out on the street uh, trying to apply his or her common sense, Um, but police command, like you know, sort of all the elites in this country are just totally disconnected. And I think Gladys Berejiklian will stand condemned for essentially delegating not the enforcement of laws, but really the way uh, the whole whole tone of enforcement, um, uh, giving maximal discretion to Mick Fuller. He's now managing all kinds of things. In New South Wales, and this is not a community policing model. Uh, this this is a model of you know I will show you who's boss. Uh, I'm not saying this is South America, uh, but these are the sort of uh, the way the police forces operate in countries where there's no sense of connection to the community, and uh, and we observe that perhaps the. Um, the relative shortage of actually arrests, as opposed to all the move on, move ons, is probably the individual constable just not being at all comfortable um, uh, with enforcing these goddamn regulations. You've
1: raised an interesting <laughs> point, and that's one of the things that'll be, you know, that the coronavirus might change, which is the there's been this tendency in Australia where, you do look, you do have to respect police, much as I, I think they sometimes make operational mistakes, to put it mildly. Uh, look, these are people who put their lives on the line for public safety, and Australians rightly have a a respect for uh, the police force um, and and, and what it does and, and its role in a ordered society. But that too often gets conflated with the need to go along with each and every instance of power that police and indeed other law enforcement agencies, particularly around terrorism, uh, want You know, oh, if you don't support these powers for police, you don't support the police. Oh, how can you not support them? Po- so I hope after this we're able to divorce respectful people who genuinely provide a, a necessary public service and do make sacrifices with the need to have legal oversight of those things. And in particular, I really do hope that people look at the behaviour of individual police members driving up to um, men and women lying in the park and, and, get, and moving them on. I hope they look at that and then think, hmm, is it really such a good idea to give police the power to strip-search children at music festivals? Do we really um, trust each and every member of the police force to know when it's appropriate to strip down a 12-year-old girl and make her um, squat and cough? Uh, these are the questions we have to now consider uh, in the wake of this. It's sort of put a, a distant issue for a lot of people on, on the public radar and the public consciousness. But uh, but I think I, I
2: think that's... Right. And um, we should always, it's not enough to pass a law, you've got to think about um, how that law will be enforced by, um, uh, by a panoply of people, some good, some bad. But I don't think that we should um, ever uh, ignore the ultimate responsibility held by the political class or by our elected politicians for choosing to require the police to enforce these sorts of laws and again it just comes back to this fundamental problem that i don't think that they know whether um their previous rules are working so i i, I wouldn't want to be a politician right now i wouldn't want to be an elected leader because this is one of the most challenging policy issues that the government's at all levels of government have ever faced um certainly not just in our lifetimes but arguably in the last hundred years and the trade-offs that they have to make are shocking and terrible no matter what your view is on um where they what they should be falling on those trade-offs but having said that it is their responsibility it is their responsibility when we see those cop cars driving through parks it is their rules or lack of effective rulemaking that has required those police to march up to the the two tradies having the lunch on the bench. Um, uh, It is their responsibility. And um, for the police who, um, for instance, uh, have been interrogating people who have been reading a book in a park, it is ultimately our elected politician's responsibility for those um, uh, enforcement
1: actions. Yes and no. I mean, I don't think it's their responsibility to, you know, Apply the laws in ways that are objectively absurd. I mean, we can't let police off the off the hook completely. It's just a, as Brendan O'Neill, uh, no, it wasn't Brendan O'Neill. It was somebody else that spiked wrote uh, this week. If you, if you give, or maybe it was Brendan O'Neill, but if you give um, police wide powers, and of course you're right in that the political class has to own and accept and and the buck stops with them in terms of these powers. But if you give it to them, of course a few of them are going to over. Um, uh, interpret these rules and, and throw their weight around, but that shouldn't forgive the fact that uh, the, the attitude, as I said, I just go back to these images of Mick Fuller. He he, he just seems to to be enjoying this. This is this is um, for 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 the, the 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 public health brigade for for various organs of the state. This is like Christmas for them. I really do. Maybe not consciously even, but this 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 impulse to control human behaviour to to control. The 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 micromanage yeah. the, its citizens. I, I just yeah. uh, getting you, you you do bring to mind uh, Dr.
0: Johnson's famous quote about um, uh, the Puritans banning uh, bear baiting. He said it was not so much of um, concern for the torment of the bearers as it was about the enjoyment clearly displayed by the spectators. Yes, perfect. Yes, <laughs> very apt. That's the world we live in. Uh, we will be back with more looking forward after this short break. Welcome back. It's time for The Reckoning. We're already seeing the economic costs mount up. In our first segment, we spoke about the JobKeeper program, but just before I asked Dr Berg, uh, the uh, Doctor of Economics, I think, uh, we're gonna, I'm just gonna read out some of the things that we're talking about. Uh, there's been a $40 billion discretionary set, fund set up for the finance minister. Uh, there's $14 billion worth of uh, wealth, extra welfare payments that have been authorised uh, for students, for new start recipients. Um, we're looking at uh, $31 billion worth of programs for employers, not counting uh, the uh, JobKeeper program, uh, but they're about temporary r- relief for distressed businesses. Um, we've got accelerated depreciation uh, allowances, um uh, accelerated write-offs. Uh, we've got a pro- billion dollar program for the for the regions nearly a billion dollars for airlines and airports. Uh, what else have we got? we're guaranteeing loans for small businesses. Uh, that's another 20 billion dollars um, uh, 15 another 15 guaranteed for lending uh, nearly another billion dollars for Medicare. Um, $1.3 billion deal with uh, private hospitals. Uh, so that's just the Commonwealth level. And um, of course, the JobKeeper program itself is estimated to cost $130 billion over this financial year and the next one.
2: Chris. Well, th- thank you. Thank you for such a warming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the famous phrase, a billion here, a billion there, soon you're talking about real money. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, look, this is, this is a... This is obviously something that we're going to be paying for for decades. When, however, I see these announcements come through, the thing that is actually more worrying, I think, than the individual price tags of the policies themselves is that a lot of these policies are going to be really hard to get rid of once the crisis is over. So even if, let's imagine there's this immediate go back to work moment we decide in November that coronavirus doesn't exist anymore, and then we can all go back to work and we can shut down um, these big spends. I don't think we will shut down these big spends. And so, for for example, so yesterday, um, the Commonwealth government announced that it was going to make childcare free for all essential workers. And of course, we're all essential workers, so childcare now is free to... Um, to the user. Now it's doing that in part because the childcare services are facing a really massive um, crunch. And instead of bailing out the firms, the government has decided, well, why don't we make childcare free and encourage people to go back into childcare? For the life of me, I do not see how we reverse that policy. Once childcare is free at point of service to childcare users, it is going to be a hell of a task. To actually roll that welfare or that social service program back, it's just going to be really, really hard. So when you lift those policies, Scott, I'm just thinking it's going to take us years, even decades, to to stop those spends. Let alone pay off the um, uh, cost that we're incurring in this short to medium term to deal with the crisis. So I don't, I don't think that the problem is just the cost it's the fact that we're locking in policies they're going to be really really hard to repeal
0: and and also even before you're looking ahead i'm looking back Um, we're looking back to nearly 29 years or something of uninterrupted economic growth the opportunities that we actually had to put our finances on a footing where we would have been better able to absorb this Um, but we actually entered at the end of 29 years of economic growth we entered, uh, entered this crisis uh, with, still with debt and still already running a federal budget deficit. Uh, already with the states, um, through their so called um, uh, infrastructure splurges, uh, dramatically increasing, forecast to dramatically increase their debt levels anyway, even before this. Um, so, in terms of the, the, the robust financial health that we should have enjoyed after all of the blessings that Australia has had over the last uh, 20 years in particular. We, we start from a place that uh, it could have been worse, but it could have been a, a hell of a lot better. And, and also, I think that goes on the policy front as well. Uh, to take just the example of childcare, uh, we've just made free this industry that has already been completely captured by the providers. Uh, we saw under the last Labor government uh, the deals that were done with the unions uh, to create this extremely high cost model of provider led uh, child care and uh, it was always the, the uh, individual punters like me uh, and my wife picking that up um, uh, but we bore that cost uh, and now that the government has decided to make it free it's removed any chance that it ever had of getting some leverage to restore child care to something that might have actually uh, worked both for the uh, the customers and also the taxpayer?
2: Well, I mean, uh, purely on a personal level, I'm literally two months ago, I sent my youngest to school, therefore being relieved of the crushing burden that <laughs> childcare is. And now it turns out it's free. So um, I'm hoping that my cheque for all my previous spends are, is in the mail.
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it'll it'll become a sacred cow, Scott. You arrive, it will be seen like public education or public health care. It, it's already, as a matter of fact, because we have to subsidise the damn thing, because he's, as you said, uh, United Voice and the Gillard government made it monstrously expensive and overregulated. It's already uh, about, I don't know, in the top 10 spending programs, you know, that includes Defense and the entire health system and so on. So it's an enormous cost anyway. Um, but the point has to be made, and I appreciate this is separate from corona. But what the hell? We talk about it enough these days, anyway. I mean, are we we're we really that much better off uh, since we've made since since we've made the move to early childhood education. What used to be called cradle daycare is now early childhood education. But um plan results are going. Um, down results are going down Uh, anecdotally we hear that uh, children are leaving school functionally illiterate you know they might be able to read a road sign or something they can't read a newspaper Uh, I I think early childhood education uh, has run its course but unfortunately now as you said we have locked it in as this essential social service and we'll be literally poorer for it no, and it goes to it goes to Scott's point,
2: which is that um, we could have been in a much better situation going into this crisis. We could have had a much freer economy. We could have had a much lower debt burden and deficit. We could have had much lower tax burdens. We could have had a just a more resilient economy. Um, and I think the optimist in me. Um, thinks that this is now the opportunity to reset a lot of these conversations around what does a economy look like that needs to be flexible, that needs to be resilient, that needs to be capable of dealing with incredibly unexpected or rare events um, that, that we can't predict. Um, and I think the conversation that we need to have as a free market movement or as libertarians or conservatives or classical liberals is about what that economy looks like. And it's not a socialised economy. It's not a economy where we have massive crippling burdens on the state in the normal course of events. It's an economy that allows us to use the very high state capacity that we have in order to respond to unpredictable, say, public health crises or foreign policy crises or what have you, but um, otherwise is focused on making sure we are as rich as possible and therefore as capable as possible to deal with these unexpected events.
1: Yeah, and look, that's an interesting contrast because um, you, you, one of the other things, one of the, the few good things to come out of this is that the government, particularly state governments, are waiving various taxes and fees and so on. It, like, even liquor licensing is being waived. I mean, I-, I can guarantee you now that that will not last post this, uh, th- this crisis. They'll whack that on as soon as they possibly can. Aided a bit, I might add, by big public health and all the other villains who don't wanna even do it as a re- revenue raising uh, measure, but to uh, you know stamp out problem drinking and so on and so forth. Um, to the extent that works, so I not at all. No, but- and I, I think that's right. And what we're seeing is
2: um some covert deregulations. So in some instances, so while the police are patrolling our uh, parks, at the same time, we're seeing deregulations and regulatory reductions in very um strange parts of the economy. Now obviously we're seeing some regulatory reductions in things like medical devices and testing and so forth because, Quite rightly, governments have realized that the incredible burdens they impose on, um, on medical innovation are actually harming and making it, you know, the really significant health consequences right now. But we're also seeing regulatory reductions in other areas as well. So the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority has decided that it's going to um, ease capital standards on banks for the um, duration of the crisis, or it's going to allow banks to dip into those capital, whereas previously they would have um, required them to hold more capital against loans. We've seen the Australian Securities and Investment Commission um, pull back a lot of its most intrusive surveillance. Programs, And I suspect the longer that the crisis goes on, the more we're going to see a standing down of some regulatory agencies as everybody focuses on, well, how can we maximize um, employment? How can we maximize growth in such a stressful time do, now do you really i think
1: you genuinely believe? because that by that logic then they would uh, the, the the regulators would take their foot off the throat of private enterprise after this is over um because the point that we've been making at the rpa is that um if 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 land tax and licensing fees and payroll tax in particular are so economy crushing in bad times and surely they're bad for the economy in good times as well
2: Oh, that's that's absolutely right. But remember, to to the to the first point that we've made on this conversation today, is that there's not going to be an obvious divide between the bad times which we're living through right now and the good times, yeah, that's because the good times, the introduction, the unfreezing of the economy, is going to be very very disruptive, and it's going to have a lot of um, economic challenges. One of which is a lot of the people who've been frozen in place. Their jobs are not going to survive in the unfreezing moment. So we're going to have an employment crisis. We're going to have an economic growth crisis. We're going to have a consumption and demand crisis. We're going to have all of that the moment the government steps off the brake, And that is the moment in which I think that we need the deregulation. That's I think when we will need the lowest taxes, and the least government intervention in the economy. Yeah. That's so to, when to, we need the market to kick in.
0: To play back what you were saying, Chris, um, you were uh, earlier this week offline talking about the, uh, the Scandinavian model. I think it was Francis Fukuyama that said that the um, the job at the end of history is getting to Denmark. And hmm, yeah. uh, your point was that the, the Scandi model is, is that of the welfare state. Uh, but with free enterprise actually given uh, the opportunity to go and do its thing, uh, which is uh, creating the wealth that allows the welfare state to happen. And what we've got in Australia now is is, is perhaps the worst of all possible worlds. We've we've just taken tremendous strides. You know, it's, it's like Clement Attlee couldn't have been prouder of the steps that we've <laughs> taken over the last few weeks to have created a, a welfare state in Australia. Um, but it hasn't been the focus. And uh, at the intellectual level, I'd say, I mean, it's happening in the real world, of course, because it's driven by necessity. Uh, The Australian, uh, like, for instance, there's been an intellectual debate uh, started by um, uh, uh, Katrina Grace Kelly and others uh, say for a while that uh, enterprise bargaining is dead and uh, should be just taken out of the back, uh, behind the shed and shot. And no one was paying attention, but uh, the Australian Mines and Metals Association, for instance, has come out and said exactly that. Uh, We've seen uh, Ian Ross at the Fair Work Commission uh, injecting uh, immediate flexibility into a range of awards. So we're potentially back to a system in which uh, the Fair Work Commission's completely back in charge. EBAs are actually just seen as things which have done nothing but add cost to business. Uh, And that if you could have more... Flexible and relevant awards, then um, uh, that's in the interests of both workers and you know what what's left of Australia's employers. So uh, the the scope for a, a grand bargain, if you like, is there, and th- and that's why uh, people who actually believe in markets and understand wealth creation need to be at the forefront of that.
2: Well, the Clement Attlee example is is really opposite because Prime Minister of Great Britain after after the war, no. Yeah. And more Everybody, importantly, for, kids for, listening for, at home. for our purposes, for, yeah, is um, uh, he introduced the National Health Service in the UK? Mm. And of course, the um, Morrison government and um, the state governments have effectively nationalised the private health, uh, private um, hospital system in Australia. So, I, I mean, one way to think about this is, uh, as, as you're saying, um, we're moving to a Nordic model of welfare. So it's. I, I think I'm. I'm very skeptical that in the short term or medium term we're going to be able to do things like get rid of childcare subsidies. Um, I think it's going to be very, very challenging to roll back the JobKeeper program, primarily because of that disruption that I've been talking about. Um, But on the other side, what we'll need to do if we're going to be able to afford that and if we're going to continue to have a dynamic market economy, I think we're going to have to have massive deregulation on the other side of the economy. I think we're going to need to be, we, we will survive as Denmark, but we'll only survive as Denmark if we have a very free, very open and very capable economy able to give us the growth that we will need to fund those heavy welfare programs now i think we're going to spend the next decade or two trying to roll back those programs but in the interim for the next decade or two in the interim we're going to need a much less regulated economy so that the private sector can give us the growth to fund those programs
1: do you really see that happening politically? Do you really see the Sally McManus of the world saying, "Well, geez, we better, uh, you know, agree to a, a pared down fair work act"? Uh, do you really see all the rent seekers, all the vested interest, the, the renewable energy racket? Do you see, we've like, seen it before. You know, so,
2: so get in. We have seen this before, and if we ta- start to take a, uh, yeah, in the eighties, and, um, uh, mm-hmm. and and even at the end of the Second World War. I mean, we do see these instances of of new grand bargains around what the economy looks like. Mm. They are hard fought and they are hard to win and they are highly contentious. But we are talking, we are right now experiencing a once in a century economic disruption. This is the opportunity for us to do that.
0: Yeah, except what's different between now and the 80s, and this, this is the, the problem with relying on Sally McManus and it's nice that ScoMo gave her a ring. The union, because of the declining uh, membership of, uh, in the private sector of unions, the, the uh, overall union movement is dominated by the public sector. And, of course, part of getting back to a productive Australia is actually tackling the public sector itself. There's been no pain-sharing. Um, In in fact, I'll I'll call out the exception. We read last night that the senior executives at La Trobe University have actually given themselves a pay cut, and I say good on them. I'll now be waiting for not just the politicians, because not that many of them, but all of those uh, senior executive service figures in public services across the country. Uh, I'm looking for them to put their hand up for the pay cuts. I'm actually looking to do something about the wage roll in Queensland. They were heading for an overall wage roll increase of nearly five percent um, over the coming year, as a result of both adding to the public sector and uh, giving them pay rises along the way. So, and you can't do a grand bargain with Sally McManus because it's all those public service unions uh, that'll be uh, that have zero interest in a productive economy. Uh, it, it, it'll actually be the unions. Uh, The AWUs, uh, God forbid, the uh, CFMMUs, and so on, that actually have some interest in those parts of the economy where wealth is actually created. The the Morrison government has got to understand it's not the it's not the loudest voices. It's actually the people that create wealth that they need to be talking to.
2: That's right, and that's what we are going to be facing for the next decade. I mean, this is. Uh, we have a, already a vision of what the free market movement has to do for the next 10 years. And it's rolling back, it's de- rolling back some of the interventions that have been introduced in this short couple of weeks. It's um, deregulating the economy so that we can afford those interventions. And it's rebuilding the economy so that we're in a much better position to deal with the next crisis, regardless of what that crisis is.
0: And we can certainly expect one. We'll be back with more after this break. That's enough about social and economic Armageddon. We have come to that part of the program where we share our books and culture picks, what we've been reading, watching, and listening to. Chris, what have you been escaping to?
2: So I have been very much escaping. I have, um, uh, or we have been watching, because my wife um, has has required that I watch this show, um, a romantic comedy anthology um, on Amazon Prime called Modern Love. I don't want to defend this very much because yeah. it is very, very light watching, um, but it is light, uh, light entertainment for dark times. So I thought it was worth briefly talking to the audience about so what it's it's based on a weekly column with the new york times which has a um reput the modern love column which has a reputation of um uh some unusual relationship advice um and some unusual stories about relationships with uh, people who, who have let's just say non-traditional structured families um you know polyamorous people lots cool. of um, lots of uh, complex love adoption stories and all that sort of thing so there's a lot of love is love going on um uh the show i was just trying to think what it reminded me of it actually reminds me of love actually um because it's um it's vaguely comic but it um is saccharine sweet and with the exception of just one or two sad stories or one or two more thematically heavy stories, which make it at all watchable, this is my critique of Love Actually while we're at it. There's only one, if it wasn't for the fact in Love Actually that um, uh, one of the characters is cheating on his wife, that would be a completely unwatchable show, a watchable movie because it, isn't it needs some darkness in there it needs some um a- energy in there to to give it a bit more a um a, a, a bit heavier themes. but nonetheless anyway i'm not sure i recommend this show modern love it's on amazon prime but you know i have been watching it scott and i thought it's important that we share all parts of our life with our <laughs> audience
0: well you can't overshare chris you can't overshare you can't overshare
2: and you know i haven't written into this story and and i have a reasonably traditional <laughs> heteronormative life I- <laughs>
0: Well, I might just elevate the tone for a little bit. Um, please, please do, because uh, <laughs> I uh, I have been trying to find ways to um, uh, different ways to escape, and uh, in those times when I have difficulty sleeping, I've been um, going back to uh, Thomas Thomas Babington Macaulay, the famous nineteenth-century historian, writer, and uh, administrator, and uh, his five-volume history of England. And I must admit, Chris, I'm nowhere near having read.
2: Five <laughs> All five volumes. <audience. laughs>
0: yeah,
1: but um, I have been dipping... It to reading Tombs of the English and their history a couple of years back, but that's uh, gargantuan.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Nowhere near that at the moment. Um, uh, but uh, it's a great thing to dip into because uh, he's a terrific writer. He, his intent basically was to combine, you know, the, the cadences almost of, a, uh, of uh, you know, Gibbon's uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire and, and you know... Uh, terrific baroque sentences and and bringing bringing the characters to life and all this kind of thing, whilst you know having a lot of facts and figures in there. And um, uh, it, I thought it was relevant for two two reasons. One of which is you know the, the bits that I'm reading are really about the lead up to the Glorious Revolution uh, when the Stuarts uh, Charles II and um, and then uh, King James uh, uh, were centralising power in their own way and James in, in particular uh, tried to overturn the, the settlement that Britain had reached and it led to the Glorious Revolution, uh, the installation of the Hanoverian kings ultimately and, uh, and the Britain uh, that was created in the 18th century and, led, and was really part of our heritage. And um, uh, for instance, he talks about uh, the establishment of the writ of habeas corpus, uh, which was one of the things demanded by Parliament uh, of Charles II and, and granted on the 26th of May, 1679. Uh, he also said that on that was a red-letter day uh, because that's the day the original act that restricted publishing and required works to be licensed actually expired. And because Charles had just called an election, that act lapsed and so England had a free press for the first time. Hmm. So Richard habeas Corpus... Um, uh, in, in that time, free press, and then you know the Bill of Rights after the Glorious Revolution. I feel like you know maybe maybe a future Macaulay will look back and say that the sort of the golden age of Anglo-Saxon liberty was you know um, 1688 to um, uh, to 2020. Uh, yeah.
2: I hope that-, well, that, that is a that is a remarkable way to interpret what is the classic work of Whig. <laughs> the Whig history that um, uh, is unfairly caricatured to suggest that everything tends to get better over time, or at least the arc of history moves towards a sort of liberal constitutional order um, with the rule of law and, um, uh, and and individual rights and even economic freedom. And so you're reading Macaulay thinking to yourself, like, yep, the Whig view of history, it did get better for a while. And now, yeah. now it's going... All the way downhill.
0: <laughs> so it's the rise and fall of Wiggism is the, uh, the history that will have to be written by one of our uh, Generation uh,
1: Liberty members when they when they graduate with
0: their...
2: Things uh, Things uh, inevitably get better until suddenly they definitely don't. They can yes. rise
1: from house arrest or from some sort of public health gulag that we'll end up with after this is all over.
0: There's <laughs> <laughs> a cheery thought and uh, you.
1: I think Gideon you will definitely be first up against the wall when the revolution comes. I'll be I'll be the first political prisoner for the almighty uh, you know um, metahocracy that we'll lind- live under very soon, um, yeah. So I have been reading a book that the great Anthony Capello sent me um, a little while ago. Again, one of the perks of this job is you get showered in free books. So it's a book called Zionism: A Concise History by Alex Rifkin. Um, it delivers exactly what it promises. It's a, it is a concise. You know the book's only two hundred pages, but it is a very engaging history of Zionism and and interesting. What what it uh, um and I'm only about sort of halfway through at the moment. Uh, and you started a few days ago, but the um what Rifkin does is better than any history I've read, and I'm reasonably familiar with the story of the establishment of the state of Israel. But he he traces that unbroken link from ancient Judea and in the kingdom of Israel uh, from the Final expulsion by the Romans in seventy CE, all the way to the eighteen, the late eighteen hundreds, and the the founding of the modern Zionist movement, and indeed, uh, you know, where I am up to right now is the uh, ma- the British mandate over Palestine after the First World War, and how that uh, how the, the fledgling proto-state of Israel um, grew out of that. But it's it, it's a it's a it, you know, Rifkin's a, a very deft historian. He's a very good writer. Uh, and one of the most interesting parts of it that came out for me was the role of the British and the British Empire in creating Israel. And it, it chronicles Theodore Herzl and the early Zionists in Europe, in continental Europe, trying to initially appeal to the Kaiser of Germany and the Tsar of Russia on the basis that... And they were partly interested in the Jewish nationalism project and in the Israel project on the basis that, well, we don't want the Jews in our country, so, yeah, sure, we'll support giving them, uh, giving you attractive land where you can all go and, um, you know... Be, by, be among yourselves and get out and stop you know, leeching off, blah, 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 whatever the anti-Semitic tropes were at the time. Only the British were, first of all, the most effective partners in the Zionist project. Um, but secondly, only the British were interested in Zionism for the right reasons. And uh, Haim Weizmann, a British chemist who, in, who invented mass production of acetone, which helped the Allied war effort in World War One, was able to get uh, all these audiences with people like Winston Churchill, who was some government minister at the time, and some of these people who Weitzman was explaining Zionism to, ended up in tears um, because it resonated with the British idea of of self determination of of um, uh, of basic rights of of and of the the, the I guess the Christian ethic of. Um, returning design, which gave us indeed the Christian Zionism movement. So a very, very uh, interesting book and something, you know, that will be a sort of a square peg round hole effort for me writing a review to, for the IPR review, you know, linking Jewish nationalism with ideas of liberty and freedom, all the rest. But uh, that work or that challenge has been made very, very easy by uh, Rifkin's excellent historical chronicling of, of uh, the two millennia of Jewish nationalism.
0: That does sound like a fascinating book, Gideon, and uh, it reminds me of a book I read by uh, Michael Oren, who uh, was born in America, uh, shifted with his family to Israel and later became ambassador to America. Mm. And he talked about America's uh, th- deep interest in Israel over uh, virtually since its founding, at least that those who were manifested by the... Uh, an Old Testament, uh, the, the Christians who were manifested by this Old Testament interest in, uh, in the ancient land of Israel and were very supportive, ultimately, of Zionism. And, and it's, it, it's amazing just how um, lucky, in a sense, it's not often you get to say that about the uh, uh, Jews in history, but um, to, that, uh, to go from a world-dominant power like uh, Britain Uh, And then for the uh, the torts to be passed to America to go from one Essentially philo-semitic country to to another Mm. which gave them the chance to Establish themselves and and now they can sort of do it on their own But they really needed that help at the at the start
1: Yeah Well, they needed they needed a colonial power to actually grant the land because it was at the time of modern Zionism's birth that was under the control of the Ottoman Empire the Turks and it was yeah a twist of fate that uh, the British, who had already committed to actually building a Jewish national home in that area, were given the mandate over what was then known as Palestine. Uh, so, yeah, if it had ended up in the hands of the French or something, history could be very, very different. Right. Exactly, yeah. And that, that was under the League of Nations. Remember that?
0: That's <laughs> yeah. true, yeah. Uh, yeah. Goodness. Um, now, it does sound like a good book, and I look forward to you reviewing it for the winter edition of the IPA Review, Gideon. Because we Uh, because uh, notwithstanding uh, pandemics and other things, the IPA review rolls
1: on. show must go on.
0: Yes, the autumn edition is uh, being put together as we speak and it should be out soon and then we'll roll on into winter. Uh, You will, of course, if you're a member of the IPA, get that in your mailbox. If you're not already a member, go to ipa.org.au forward slash join and uh, get around our work and you'll see some of the tremendous range of uh, commentary and columns uh, and analyses and research that we've produced about this pandemic and its consequences both economic and social uh, over the last two weeks you can read uh, Gideon's um, uh, email to members uh, which i thought was terrific as well Gideon another great piece of uh, gonzo reportage
1: from the uh, uh, <laughs> from, from the front. It, it was actually, um, yeah, I got your email, Scott. Sorry I haven't replied to you yet. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a little bit gonzo. But my inspiration also for that was um, the style of Louis Ferdinand Céline, who wrote one of my favourite books of all time and the one of the, what I call the, the Misanthropist Manifesto. It is the most savagely crackling, bitter, angry rant of a novel, but absolute genius. So, uh, yeah. That's my second culture pick, I and guess. You, and, you thought, and you thought you'd apply that to the pandemic. Yes,
0: <laughs> it's made me better. Yeah. No, what's that? Uh, well, we Honour the Great. Yeah, first first rule of composition, Honour the Greats. Here, here. Very good. Uh, you have been listening to Looking Forward, a product of the IPA. I'd like to say a big thank you, first of all, to my uh, co-host, Dr. Chris Berg from RMIT University. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Gideon Rosner, the Director of Policy at the IPA. Thank you, Scott. Thank you also to Saul, uh, who's been managing the recording, and Josh, who'll be managing the editing, and, and also my, uh, my, my, local, uh, um, my local producer, Wendy, for her assistance during the <laughs> pr- production of this program. <laughs> we'll be back with more looking forward next week.